If you're good at something, never do it for free. You're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. I bought you. <laughs> Welcome back. We are the Podfellas, and thanks once again for listening to our entertainment podcast. I'm Myron, and joining me each week is Will. How's it going, everyone? And each week, we'll provide a film or TV review, followed by a deeper dive into a related topic. Today, we will be providing a review of Birds of Prey, and we will follow that up with a look back at our favorite and least favorite moments from the DCEU. Now, we're going to try to be respectful when we talk about our least favorite moments, but, you know, it's I think really that really hard has, for you, though. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. You know me. I get worked up. I'm like a microwave. I'll get hot and, and really, like, you know, angry and, and incensed. But then I cool back down really quickly. So, like I was saying, uh, we will try to be respectful. But, you know, we are film critics. At the same time, we are fans and we are, you know, in the industry. So I think it's up to all of us to hold the people that make the movies to a higher standard. After all, it is people like us that go spend the money on the tickets and, you know, tell people whether it's a good film or not so they can go watch it and then they can tell their friends whether it's a good film or not. So we will be honest, but we will be respectful. Cool. I will be. I mean, I'm just I'm just kind of waiting <laughs> on you. We'll see what happens with you. I'll, I'll do my best, my friend. I will do my best. OK, that's that's all we ask for. Talking a little bit about what happened this past weekend. A lot of events occurred. This it was Oscar Sunday. Um, and I know that you were out of town in Big Bear for uh, your girlfriend's birthday party. How did that go? It went great. Uh, she had a great time. Enjoyed it. It was just good hangs with good friends and uh, just being away from all the busyness, uh, mm-hmm. being up in the mountains. So it was peaceful. Yeah. Did you get to watch the Oscars at all? Or did I didn't, we... but, but I, I did keep it up on the internet. I was, you know, online checking and looking at the, uh, the, 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 the nominees and the winners mm-hmm. and lo and behold man i am speechless hmm. completely for best picture the parasite of uh, parasite yes um yeah. i'm also though speechless but in a in a bad way because i was kind of annoyed that that 1917 although i loved it won for best visual effects it just made no sense yeah. to me yeah it was um, a little bit weird everything else seemed to match up pretty much line up to what we were predicting and I think for the most part. Yeah, I think so. I mean, first off, let me apologize to Will and our viewers last week. I think things got a little bit heated. Uh, Will and I obviously disagreed as to what we thought was the best picture of the year. I mean, Will loved Parasite, <laughs> and I respected 1917. But, you know, we obviously <laughs> were at odds. You know, I, I I would like to just put that behind us, move but forward. he got now the that, last stab nah, and yeah. uh, basically won the fencing competition. Since, so. since, since I won. Uh, I mean, Parasite won. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> yes. Great. <laughs> Just I have no, no. D- hey, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy as well, just as much, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, big win, not only for Parasite, but I think for all of us, whether we're Asian or not, Korean or not, I think it's just a big win for good cinema. So very happy about that. Yeah. Uh, one of the biggest things, though, that I've been hearing from my friends, um, which I'm kind of curious to see what your thoughts are, was that they were confused that why Parasite, who won obviously best international film to also win big picture uh, best picture and and i looked at them puzzled thinking like well what do you mean and they're saying well normally you know international film um don't get nominated for best picture but i'm like no that was the problem ha- yeah well well crunching tiger hidden dragon was nominated for best picture yeah. wasn't it and that's so a was, film. so was roma and a lot of people thought roma should have won both last year 
um, mm. best foreign language film as well as best picture. Is yeah, it usually it, one or the other though? Is that what they're yeah, trying to say? I think what they usually do is, um, you know, if a movie is nominated for both categories, they'll give it the Oscar for best foreign language film. And then after that, it's kind of like placating them and be like, okay, good job. And they give it like a little pat on the head and they say, okay, you got your award. But since we gave this one to you, we're going to give the best picture award to like an, an American film, you know? So uh, that's stupid. I, I think okay. it was very political. So the fact that uh, Parasite won both this year, I think just really goes to show what great of a movie parasite was and actually like what a good movie is in general like yeah. then that deserves it so i want to bring this up uh this is old news in a sense but because we're talking about birds of prey i wanted to ask this of you again so elizabeth banks uh directed charlie's angels it came out a few months ago uh, and you know the movie did not do well and she tweeted that men don't go to see female-led action movies and the reason i bring this up now is the movie that we're reviewing birds of prey it was estimated to make about 45 million at the box office and those were modest estimates from the studio it far underperformed and made about mid-30s i i think i'm not sure what exactly it was but i think it was around 35 million so with that being said do you agree or disagree with Elizabeth Banks? Banks's I was stance? annoyed that you sent this article. I honestly was annoyed that that I had How to so? read that because I it <laughs> it's false. Like okay, previous Charlie's Angels back in like two thousand and two thousand three did well in the box office. It's just that this one did not appeal well to the masses and was a failed reboot. You know, I think there are plenty of great films led by females uh well i mean female actors and a female cast and all that stuff too um but if i'm just gonna look at like you know a female-led uh film there's tons of good of those like thelma and louise hannah tomb raider underworld resident evil atomic blonde you know there's so many good female-led films uh this one I, i just i have no idea what honestly what banks is talking about i just i just think she was just grudgingly just venting to me honestly i don't know well here's the thing for me i agree somewhat and i also disagree somewhat i think anyone will go watch a movie that they want to watch yep i mean if i mean i watched the trailer for charlie's angels and i'm sorry i was like i don't really want to watch that um (laughs) it might be good and if it's good then you know i will wait till it comes out on video and i will you know, watch it, and if it's great, maybe even you know review it with you and wow. tell people, yeah, VHS. go watch it. Or, yeah, <laughs> VHS, amazing <laughs> beta, beta, yeah, or laser disc. But anyhow, um, I think that if you're making an action movie, first off, you're dealing, you're already like on thin ice because. Uh, you want it to be a known property. And then there's the question, will that property draw an audience? Now, Charlie's Angels from the 80s, I don't know if that's a property that would sell today. Obviously, it did in the early 2000s when Mick G directed Cameron Diaz, Lucy Liu, Demi Moore, and all those people. Um, and that did well. But I just it, was, don't it was the first. It was it was the first yeah. of its kind at that yeah. moment. Yeah, I just don't know if something like that registers. No. Now... Birds of Prey, on the other hand, um, I will get to my review later, but I went and watched it with my wife. And let me just say, she did not enjoy it. And, you know, she's female and she wasn't... This is a female talking. Yeah, she wasn't drawn to the movie and she wasn't drawn to it more than I was because she was a female. She just didn't like the movie. And, you know, neither did I, but I will get to that a little bit later. (laughs) 
And like we always said, you know, we wanted this podcast to be about what regular people think about the movies. And even though Will and I have some experience in the field and might bring a certain eye and a certain level of knowledge and, um, you know, background to our reviews at at the same time, we just want to be two down to earth people that love going to movies. And so, you know, my wife's review matters as does ours. And, you know, our reviews matter just as much as anyone else that watches these movies. Anyway, looking ahead to future episodes. So our introduction is always that we are an entertainment podcast doing both film and TV reviews. But Will, I think you've noticed up until now, we've only done movie reviews. Now that award season is over and we are looking ahead to 2020, I think there's a nice little gap in time here where you and I can review some television shows. So over the next two weeks, I'd like to do what I'm calling is a two-part cynical superhero mashup. That's a mouthful. Cynical. Yeah. Mm. Meaning a cynical take on superheroes and the world they live in. So next week, Will and I will be reviewing the Amazon television show, The Boys. And then the week after, Will and I will be reviewing the Watchmen television show on HBO. And in the second part of that, we will be taking a look back at the Watchmen movie, which was directed by Zack Snyder, someone that we might be bringing up later in this episode. Before we get to the main topic at hand, I wanted to remind you all that our podcast can be found on the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play, as well as Spotify. So if you have any friends that want to tune in, go ahead and let them know that they can listen to us there. So moving on to our main review, we wanted to go ahead and play for you all the film trailer for Birds of Prey. Here it is. Can I help you? Why, yes, yes, you can. I'm here to report a terrible crime. And what terrible crime is that? This one. Ah, oh, shit. I told this all wrong. Quick history lesson. This all started when the Joker and I broke up. It was completely mutual. And soon enough, I was back on my feet, ready to embrace the fierce goddess within. <laughs> it's oh so quiet. Now that I cut ties with Mr. J, I'm about to learn that a lot of people You're want me dead. All alone. And at the top of that list is this guy. And so peaceful. But it turns out <laughs> that wasn't the only dame in Gotham looking for emancipation. You fall in love. He's after all of us. We can't just rob him. You betrayed him. You killed his BFF. What? You are so cool. That was a snippet of the trailer for Birds of Prey, directed by Kathy Ann, starring Margot Robbie. Here is a brief synopsis. After splitting with the Joker, Harley Quinn joins superheroes Black Canary, Huntress, and Renee Montoya to save a young girl from an evil crime lord. Will, I know that you and I both watched this movie this week, so I wanted to go ahead. I know that you're going to rip a bigger one than I am, so... (laughs) With this film. Well, maybe. We'll see. Mm. We'll we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, But before I do any damage here, I wanted to ask you (laughs) what your thoughts were about the film. Like, I enjoyed, I accepted and I actually enjoyed the whole campiness of of the film. For me, any graphic novel or comic book, making it into a film can have a difficult time balancing, like, when you want to bring in dramatic cues. And, and when you do that, like it, to me, I know that it can throw off the core essence of it being, a com- you know, deriving from a comic yeah. book. You know You're I mean? talking about staying true to the source material, but also yeah. making sure it translates to moviegoers. Yeah, because I get it. Like it's live action. You're coming from 
you know, uh, uh, just a drawing book, you know, if, like what we all grew up with, what we all enjoy, comic books, our, our, our fantasies, our escape, and, and we're bringing it to life. But, you know, it, it's comic books are, and, and graphic novels, they're always going to be that campiness, that, that it'll always have that essence. And, and when, when you try to take away that and only just put in drama or you, or you think like it needs more drama and less campiness, it just doesn't, I don't know, for me, it doesn't work. But I'm glad that it accepted that this film to me accepted that it shouldn't be taken so seriously, you know, especially when we because we're trying to escape our reality of, of our everyday life. You know, I think overall that the film was easy to follow. And I think most of the cast had good dynamics, except for that little Asian girl. I'm sorry. She was super annoying to me. Yeah. She played <laughs> Cass, the, the main I, I girl in distress I, here. I just I couldn't stand looking at her i'm sorry i don't know what it's just like she just annoyed me for some reason she annoyed like, me as well the same well. it's like this it's the same as uh what's the what was the asian girl in in in, in star wars <laughs> oh rose um. <laughs> yeah just give that rose vibe that's what i'm gonna just call it it was like the rose vibe i was just i can't stand looking at you and i just don't like your acting it just did not work for me but I mean, everyone else, Harley and, and Black Canary, Huntress and Renee Montoya, they all had good, cram, uh, great chemistry. And and there were some funny and gruesome bits. I think Margot Robbie makes it awesome, Harley Quinn. I thought she did a great job. I thought she, you know, had the accent, that New York kind of New Jersey accent down well uh, for an Aussie. Um, I enjoyed, I, I also especially enjoyed seeing more of Gotham kind of like where that that kind of like where her hood or or just her everyday life of like what gotham looks like you know yeah. what i mean which looked so, an awful lot like downtown la but <laughs> yeah no it did it really did there was actually uh because it was downtown one, la yeah. it literally was there's was one shot where i realized like i feel like i've parked in that parking lot right there right next to the where the oldest bookstore mm-hmm, is and i was like mm-hmm. yep that is exactly where it was as much as the story though was easy to follow i think that it was too simple for me to have any connection or engagement i think that um it's just a simple uh evil like crime lord that they're just trying to save a young girl from right so it can't get any simpler than that but i don't know i just kind of wish it had a little bit more layers in the end, though, I thought I figured I probably would enjoy reading this more than watching it. It got to that point where I was just like, eh, okay. The other thing that I thought was like kind of off for me was the fight scenes. So hmm. the fight scenes dragged for me. Yeah. Um, as I kind of caught Margot, it seemed like she wasn't able to keep up with the speed in making it look realistic. It's like, Actually, the editing actually could have been better to hide how slow she was fighting. Yeah, as the stuntmen seemed like they were waiting forever to get. No, exactly. That really bothered me. It seemed everything seemed extremely choreographed, and as right. if the bad guys were waiting to get hit, and it yeah. didn't feel very effective. And because of that, the the stakes felt lower. Yeah, it it just it dragged, and they and the editor I I think dropped a little bit of the ball, not doing a good job covering that up, not not doing faster cuts to kind of. You know, because action scenes are all about fast cuts and, and to the point, you know, and execution. But you can totally tell when, like, when Margot hits one, you know, bad guy, the other bad guys, like, you see him standing there waiting <laughs> as if he's still struggling or like, oh, yeah. he's hurt and just waiting for him, uh, her yeah. to hit him. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, so I mean, it just it just fell flat in that sense. However, though, I don't know about you, but she, she I think she's the only Margot Robbie, Holly Quinn is the one person that can make a breakfast sandwich look so delicious. And oh sexy. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I want to make that this weekend. What's funny is I had a conversation about this movie with uh, another friend of mine. Uh-huh. And the thing we were talking about mostly was that breakfast sandwich that she ate because he was like, oh, yeah, I, I made that the next day. I ate it. It was delicious. I was like, damn it. I need to make that, too. It was. Oh, man. It literally gave me a flashback to Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards when he shot the uh uh, the 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 croissant or whatever with the with the whipped cream mm-hmm. at the restaurant when when Christoph Waltz was talking ah, to yeah, her yeah. and he's yeah. telling him to wait for the whipped cream but the way he lit it was like oh my gosh I I want to yeah. eat that right now <laughs> so I never knew food could be so enticing her monologue though too of that breakfast like how she was describing it too was hilarious and it was awesome overall like. With with the simple storyline, it it really for me kind of like focused on on Harley Quinn and her breakup of the Joker, and to me it's just heartbreak can be a real bitch, especially to a sociopath. <laughs> that is true. That is true. That's that's what I got. It makes them want to blow shit up. That's yeah, for sure. It literally, was that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's that's my take on it. I mean, like. So I mean I didn't think I ripped into it too bad. Let's see let's see let's hear your side of the story. All right. Well, if I had to talk about the good news or the bad news first, let's talk about the good news. So yes. let me talk about what I liked. Not much. <laughs> so Will alluded to the breakfast sandwich. Let me give some backstory. Harley just broke up with a joker and she goes on an all night drinking bender and she's hungover the next day and then she goes to her favorite morning breakfast spot and the cook makes her this phenomenal breakfast sandwich i mean as soon as i saw it i was so hungry it's basically like two eggs sunny side up with (laughs) two slices of american cheese melted on top and then a ton of bacon and you Mm -hmm. take that whole thing and put it between two buttered pieces of bread and then you know as you would imagine the yolk would crack and it would run all over that buttery fried goodness and then you know she's leaving the restaurant with that sandwich and then uh, a police officer shows up and that sandwich goes flying and she's really pissed off that she didn't get to eat it and then i'm pissed off too because i wanted her to eat that sandwich i would have watched wipe her, eat her it. mouth man yeah drool just drooling coming no, down seriously no if the movie was an hour and a half of watching margot Robbie eat that sandwich i think it would have been far more entertaining than what oh we ended up with oh my gosh that's a stretch. That's a bit of a stretch. Well, maybe a little bit, yeah. But then, you know, in terms of what I liked, it was the sandwich. And also, <laughs> I thought the production design was actually quite good. You know, Right? I, th- yeah. I thought so, too. From her, house, from her apartment that she lived in, it was very much Harley-esque, I guess you could say. That's uh, the to, campiness. It literally yeah. is the campiness, yeah. To, to the uh, location of the final fight scene, which is where I believe the Joker and her shared a lair at one point. That was really, really cool. And then towards the end of the film, the climax happens on a sort of dock or a pier that's mm-hmm. covered in fog with statues lining the, the sides. I thought that was really well designed and very, very well lit. So I like the look of the film. I love the breakfast sandwich. Let's, in terms of what I liked, I think I could just leave it at that. So we have three things that you have listed, what you like. Yeah. 
how many just just right off the bat how many bad things would you say so what i what i didn't like was almost all of it um i thought that i i thought the acting was terrible every one of them okay so i i was not going to name any names but i think you know we are critics so let's just put it out there i think the worst person was was rosie perez she was just absolutely awful she played a police officer a detective and there's a joke that you know she talks like an like a police officer in a bad yeah, 80s cop that was, movie that was stated by my harley quinn that, right that she, but that's the thing though so they stated in the movie and it's as if it's making excuses for its own mediocrity and i think that's just really bad so it's like oh it's funny but then Rosie Perez is taking her role so seriously, even after that, that you can't help but think, okay, so you're calling attention to the fact that her acting is bad, but she's not having any fun with it. She's taking it seriously, so it makes it that much worse. So there's that. Do you think that 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 wasn't the campiness, though, of her taking it seriously, even though it was so 80s? So when I think of campiness done well, I think of a movie like Aquaman, where, you know, it just doesn't take itself too seriously. But in this movie where, you know, Rosie Perez is playing a cop and they're calling attention to her bad acting, but she's like bad acting in such a serious way. I think it just doesn't translate. It's like she's not even having any fun with it. So there's her. And then moving, uh, moving along to the Huntress, played by Mary Elizabeth winstead i've never seen this type of character before she plays an awkward assassin because she has lived her whole life training for revenge so and because of that she never took a moment to actually learn social skills so she doesn't know how to interact with people (laughs) i love that and it just led to some really weird performances where she's like trying to kill people but she doesn't know how to talk to like her talk to anyone in that scene or interact i thought it was just dude, really, really dude off. you know you know the part where she would try to introduce herself that was so great because you you yeah. you get the vibe I, you know yeah she's awkward and then everyone's like i'm yeah, calling her the bow or whatever was it the the the, the, the crossbow killer the, cro- the pro- crossbow killer she's like i'm not the crossbow killer like you know, obviously, yeah. Like to me, I that that was acceptable. I think. So, so uh, what Will is talking about is, you know, she's off, uh, basically taking revenge on the people that killed her family, and then mm-hmm. the cops and all the bad guys that are scared are calling her the crossbow killer. But she has essentially named herself the huntress. The huntress. And she gets angry whenever people call her the crossbow killer. But then everyone tends to roll their eyes when she says, "I'm not the crossbow killer. I'm the huntress." And then she starts to be aware that people think it's a really bad title and she gets really awkward about it. I, you know, why? to me, Just I think she did a great job being awkward though. It wasn't like, no, she wasn't she trying too hard. She wasn't trying hard at all. I thought, I thought it was cute actually. She, I think she was, I think she was adorable. Okay. Oh, okay. I'll give you that one. But let's now talk about Ewan McGregor who plays a <laughs> crime lord and I am generally a Ewan McGregor fan. I think he was one of the only good things about the uh, Star Wars prequel trilogy. But here, I have no idea what the heck he's doing. He is whiny and annoying. He's emotional and he's just volatile. And apparently he's someone that I think we're supposed to fear because he's so violent. But he comes across like a a five-year-old child that never really grew up and just acts out in really violent ways. Uh, The first act of violence that we see him commit is completely off-putting and detestable. Basically, there's a family of three hanging upside down, and then he orders his 
henchmen to basically slice off the face of the father uh, of the man. And then he does the same for the woman. And then Ewan McGregor's character says, you know what? Let's leave the child. But then she's crying and a snot bubble comes out. And he's so disgusted by the snot bubble that he instructs his henchmen to cut her face off too. I mean, it's a child's face. And it's just really tasteless, detestable, and completely just ridiculous. You cross the line. And there are more scenes like this where he just comes off as like a five-year-old whiny child. And then all of a sudden towards the end, he starts wearing eyeshadow for some inexplicable reason. And I have no idea what the heck is going on. And then when he gets really mad, he puts on this this like skull-like thing that makes him look like a... He's called the Black Mask. Yeah, yeah. But it basically looks like a, a low-budget version of the Red Skull from Captain America. And then the the biggest disappointment for me is his henchman um, that I, you know, I mentioned previously, the guy who's cutting off people's faces. Uh, his henchman's name is Victor Zaz, played by Chris Messina. I am a huge Chris Messina fan. He was on a show called The Newsroom, which I liked a lot. He was on The Mindy Project. He was in Argo. But here he plays some bleachy-haired assassin that uh, cuts himself every time he murders someone. And he, I, I, I don't know what he's doing here. Just to give you a little background for Black Mask, Ewan McGregor's uh, character who plays Roman Sionis, mm. he, if you read the comics, like he was born to a wealthy and utterly self-absorbed um, parents Okay. who, who dropped him <laughs> or the doctor carelessly drops him on his head and his parents cover up the entire incident. So the high society friends would not find out. So he, he, he's grown up with, with brain damage with some brain damage and he was from from the background i'm reading from his character this is a comic book backstory <laughs> this is a backstory of of uh, roman sionis um years later he was attacked by a rabid raccoon at the yeah at the this, this is not real <laughs> this, this cannot real. be real <laughs> this on. is real and his parents for forbade him to mention the incident to anyone despite their dislike to fellow socialites like thomas and martha wayne roman's parents continued to, to associate with them to maintain their social standing and force Roman to befriend their son Bruce. His parents' hypocrisy had a deep impact on Roman and he grew up to resent them and the masks that they wore in public. So he had a pretty like tough upbringing and obviously from from a wealthy uh, self of good parents. Who, who wrote this? This was this is garbage. This was uh, the first appearance for Black Mask came out in 1985. In August of 1985, created by uh, two guys named Doug uh, Moninch and Tom Mandrake, they're the ones who created Black Mask. Okay, well, they were they must have been high or something. All right, all right. Anyway, continuing on with my so, review, yes, I will have to on. say that what surprised me was that even with an 80% Rotten Tomato critics rating and an 80% Rotten Tomato public score, I absolutely hated this movie. I saw it with my wife and she hated it too. <laughs> and it just makes me really look back and, th and think about the DCEU. And it really feels like these studio execs are just throwing darts at a dartboard, trying to just find something that sticks. And luckily they had a few successes. You know, Aquaman did well and it was enjoyable. Wonder Woman was phenomenal and Shazam was a blast. Yeah. But it just seems like they're struggling to keep their head above water. Their movie mythology is an absolute mess. Let's talk about The Flash. Someone is playing The Flash 
and the TV show, and that's different from the person playing the Flash in the movies. They just had two Jokers, <laughs> one in the Suicide Squad and then one in the Joker standalone movie. Henry Cavill wasn't said he's not going to be Superman anymore, but now he says he might be Superman. Ben Affleck just dropped out of playing Bruce Wayne. Rob Pattinson stepped in, and I literally have no idea what the DCEU is anymore, which versions of which what characters are in it. It's, it's a freaking mess. I, I really loved Harley Quinn in The Suicide Squad, but putting her in a movie where she has to carry it and where she's surrounded by really bad supporting characters, I just feel like it's not fair to her. It's not fair to Margot Robbie. It's not fair to the DCEU. And, you know, I, I'm hoping that Suicide Squad 2... Um, written, directed by James Gunn, is going to be much better. I'm actually really excited for that. So we'll see yeah. what happens there. Uh, Will, what is your, if you had to rate this film, what is your final review of Birds of Prey? I give it a three. So three, three out, out of five. five. Three okay. out of five. Got it. Yeah. Well, I give it a one and a half out of five. <laughs> yep. I have a metaphor here. Hopefully you stay with me. Um, when I think of this movie, the word mediocre comes to mind. So when I think of this this movie, it's like a bowl of hot chili with melted cheese on top. It's like one of my favorite things to eat. But when that bowl is cold and the cheese is just like nasty and crusty <laughs> and it's just like room temperature, um, it still is supposed to taste good and kind of does. But like it just isn't the same. So I would have to say this movie is just like that. A cold oh bowl of chili with what once was melted cheese, but is now just this nasty layer of funk on top. That is this movie. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's hilarious. Okay. It's worth a watch if it's on TNT <laughs> or if it's available <laughs> as TNT? a 99 cent rental on <laughs> iTunes. Cause you know, TNT, they do that thing on a Sunday night where they play one movie, like six times back to back to back to back to back to back. <laughs> you know, well, if, it, okay. if it's, you know, if you're doing your laundry on a Sunday afternoon and see birds of prey on, it's worth a watch. So that was our review of Birds of Prey. We will go on a brief break and we will come back with our favorite and least favorite moments from the DCEU. Stay tuned. Soups lose hundreds of people each year. It's a collateral damage. It's fucking diabolical. They're all like that? All of them. Yeah. Pardon my French. Fuck those fuckers. I've got the boys together. No. Join us. Yeah. To do what? Spank the bastards. Yes. For Robin. I'm in. Lacing the shoes, I'm on the move. I got so much to prove. It's suicide to go after the soups. We can use help stuffing now. Excuse me. I'm sorry, are, are, are you okay? I'm fine. I'm just having a bad day. It's a work thing. I'm supposed to be this hero idol symbol, but... I don't know what the hell I'm doing. She could help us. What you just heard was a snippet from the trailer for the Amazon TV show, The Boys, which we will be reviewing next week. Now on to the second part of our episode. Will and I will be reviewing our least favorite DCEU moments, and then we will follow that up with a review of our most favorite DCEU moments. Now we will do the best we can to be fair and objective and constructive. I will but be we more will than also you will. be probably <laughs> Will will definitely be a lot more constructive than myself. But you know, we will still be honest. Now Will likes the DCEU a lot more than myself and 
let's just be honest he's a much nicer person than i am so i'm not trying to being nice i actually no. do see some goodness in it uh, yeah maybe i am nice but, i don't know yeah you are nicer than me let's just put it <laughs> that I'm, i the world has made me bitter oh but, geez so i was able to think of five moments i did not like will was only able to think of three because he in general likes the dceu and that's 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 cool so let me go ahead and get started with my bottom two moments first <laughs> before I, I do that i have to stick in some honorable mentions here so i'm gonna cheat and name like seven really bad moments so honorable mention number one the krypton scenes from man of steel do you not understand Krypton's core is collapsing. We may only have a matter of weeks. I warned you, harvesting the core was suicide. It has accelerated the process of implosion. Our energy reserves were exhausted. What would you have us do, Al? Look to the stars, like our ancestors did. There are habitable worlds within reach. We can begin by using the old outposts. Are you seriously suggesting that we evacuate the entire planet? No. Everybody here is already dead. Give me control of the Codex. I will ensure the survival of our race. Now, when I think of Krypton, I think of the Richard Donner Superman movie where Marlon Brando played Jor-El and the world was white and crystalline and everything looked just looked beautiful and elegant. Now, in Zack Schneider's world, it looked a little bit like Avatar on a rock planet where people were riding beasts and I really wasn't sure what I was seeing and what the hell was going on. I appreciated the uh, the attempt of trying to be different than you know what came before, but for me it was just a massive miss. I didn't hate it enough to put it on my top five though. <laughs> now this one w- was really hard to leave off of my top five, but I I had to at least mention this. Th- there is a line in Batman versus Superman. He has the power to wipe out the entire human race, and if we believe there's even a one percent chance that he is our enemy, we have to take it as an absolute certainty. Now, what kind of math is this? <laughs> if there is a 1% chance of anything, it doesn't mean there's a 100% chance of anything. If there is a 1% chance that there's traffic on my way to work, there is not a 100% chance that I'm going to leave an hour earlier. This makes no sense. I don't know. You, you, the analogy you're giving, like, I get it. But I was thinking more in the sense of, you know, like when the president says, are you sure Osama bin Laden is in that building? You have to be a hundred percent sure. Sure. And they were saying like, oh, we're 99% sure. Right. That's not yeah. good enough. You know yeah. So I mean? where's 1% good enough? <laughs> no, <laughs> there, there, there is a 100% chance that Donald Trump colluded with Russians. But there's a 100% there is a, chance. Yeah, but there's like a 0% chance that you would get impeached from office. Now, there, there's a lot of math here that just doesn't make any sense. And I don't know if the Donald Trump, um, example is, is fitting right but right. what i'm trying to say is one percent does not equal 100 percent. is all i'm saying okay I, yeah touche okay all right so moving on uh my number five least favorite dceu moment was the reveal of Ares, the god of war in wonder woman i'm not your enemy diana i am the only one who truly knows you and who truly knows them as you now do. They have always been and always will be weak, cruel, selfish, and capable of the greatest harvest. Now, I, 
I loved Wonder Woman, I have to say. But in this film, so David Thewlis is known for playing bookish, professorly characters. He played Professor Lupin in the Harry Potter films. And he plays someone similar in Wonder Woman, at least at the start of the film. The villains in Wonder Woman were, I would say, the weaker elements of the film. But I have to say that the ultimate reveal of Ares, the villain behind the scenes, was probably the most disappointing. Because when he reveals himself, he's basically this really ripped bodybuilder. Yeah, bodybuilder slash god, but has the face of Professor Lupin. Now, when I saw this, I was like, what? This this is just not a good image. And then the fight scene between him and Wonder Woman on the airstrip was just very anticlimactic for me. And I think that all started when, you know, he was revealed. I would say that that the reveal of Ares may not have been as as bad as maybe some of the items I just mentioned in my honorable mentions. But it came in a really, really, really good movie. And because of that, it was a bit of a letdown. Uh, My number four pick is the origin of Enchantress in The Suicide Squad. Archaeologist Dr. June Moon wandered into the wrong cave. Open something she shouldn't have. <laughs> Releasing a metahuman more powerful than any we've encountered. The Enchantress. So, June Moon played by Cara Delevingne, is a supposed archaeologist who stumbles into a cave and gets possessed by a 6,000-year-old sorceress. Now, this whole scene was shot and edited really, really badly. First off, Cara Delevingne doesn't resemble anything like an archaeologist. She's a supermodel, and she's dressed like a 20-year-old from the 1990s that just went to Yosemite and got lost in a cave somewhere. She even has like a little flashlight attached to her forehead. Um, And then when she gets possessed, um, there's like a little bio that pops up on screen that shows her strengths and weaknesses. And then it says she is over 6,000 years old. It literally is written on the screen. And then this whole thing about her her weakness is that uh, the Enchantress has a heart, but it's outside of her body. And it's being kept in a highly secure briefcase that's being controlled by the U.S. government. And whoever controls her heart controls the Enchantress. What the F, dude? <laughs> Isn't that part of the comic, though? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's like... Yeah, it's- I don't, I, do you see this stuff being handled badly in Marvel movies? I just don't. You know, you, mean you, you don't hear of... Or... No, then Marvel. I mean, Marvel does a way better job with their origin stories, I think. There will not be mm-hmm. a, a villain that gets dropped on his head and is attacked by a rabid raccoon. <laughs> <laughs> this is 1985, though. Come on now. All right. That's true. I'll give you that. All right. So going on to your least favorite DCEU moment, what is your... We're going into your top three. What is number three for you? So my number three is Batman versus Superman. Jesse Eisenberg being the worst Lex Luthor. Oh, yes. We concluded the mineral could be weaponized if a large enough sample was found. And then, among the fishes, a whale. Ah, 
lying at the bottom of the Indian Ocean. Emerald City. Beautiful. Now, Rocky is radioactive, but what he needs from you is an import license. And why would we want to weaponize this material? As a deterrent? A silver bullet to keep in reserve to use against the Kryptonians? So the day does not come, madame, when your children are waving daisies at a reviewing stand. Look, he held no truth to the Lex Luthor in the comics, and they made him to be this frantic, frail little man. Uh, I think his execution with his lines and his weird laughs sounded as if he was confused, thinking he was playing the Joker. Like, it was... I, I was just so confused about what the casting director choosing him. Um, they literally should have just casted Michael Rosenbaum because he would have saved money and they could have invested making a better story and they would have had a better Lex Luthor. Uh, yeah. My, and Michael I, Rosenbaum I Michael Rosenbaum plays Lex Luthor in the uh, television series of Smallville. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like Jesse Eisenberg is following in the steps of Gene freaking Hackman. <laughs> yeah. And then, Michael yep. Rosenbaum, who was uh, so good in Smallville. Yes, yes. I I don't know what he was doing. I think his take on the character was all wrong. I blame Zack Schneider more than I blame him because I think Jesse Eisenberg is actually a really great actor. He is. But, he just didn't fit this. It just yeah. made no sense. Either it's like, okay, Jesse, either you bulk up a little bit at least to, to kind of be that Lex Luthor that he is. He's a very strong entrepreneur, you know. He's like a... He he's just a big man and and he's a, he's like a force to be reckoned with. Like Jesse Eisenberg was just like he's a little man to be reckoned with. I don't know. It was just it was just terrible when I I couldn't stand looking at him. Now going back to you, what is your number three? My number three worst moment in the DCEU is when Bruce Wayne does CrossFit in Batman versus Superman. <laughs> Now, I was like watching this. Okay, mm -hmm. huh? What am I seeing? So Ben Affleck has his shirt off and he's training like with like tires and he's like working out really hard and he's getting ready to square off against the Man of Steel in a supposed fight to the death. So some backstory here. Uh, Bruce Wayne just got his hands on some kryptonite, but he's not completely certain whether it will work or not and whether it will weaken Superman or not. He's just, I guess, hoping it will. And in case it does... Bruce thinks he needs to work out <laughs> so that he'll be strong enough to kill Superman. But this scene is completely illogical. If Superman is weakened, you need to lift weights to kill him. I think a gun or a kryptonite knife, which he has, by the way, will do the job. Maybe he and just had to bulk up, though, because of the armor he had to wear. <laughs> Maybe not wear the armor. <laughs> And so, like, going back to my point here, if Superman, let's say if the kryptonite didn't work and he wasn't weakened, CrossFit isn't going to do jack crap against him. And neither will that metal Robocop suit that you created for yourself. So why did this scene exist? It doesn't make any sense. All right, Will, so that was my number three moment. What is your number two least favorite moment from the DCEU? So my number two least favorite moment was from the Justice League. And... Uh, well, overall, like I actually enjoyed the film. Actually, I I took it as it is, and I can't really remember anything that that really threw me out of it because I went along with the ride, uh, along for the ride, and and yeah, it was it was great. But the one freaking thing that kept bugging me throughout the whole entire film was Superman's mouth, because <laughs> if a lot of you don't know. 
it was CGI'd. Henry Cavill was not able to shave his mustache due to his other role in Mission Impossible. And with the clash of the studios, Paramount and Warner Brothers, uh, it led Warner Brothers having to spend God knows how much money to CGI his mouth. Dude, that that mouth, CGI, no amount of money could have fixed that situation. It was like floating on his face. <laughs> it, I, I need to rewatch that, this. That was the first thing I noticed. I was like, what is wrong with his mouth? Like it, like the dialogue and, and the movement of his mouth looks really odd. And why do I feel like I see um, liquidation on the sides of his like lip, whatever, as if it was Photoshop. And I look close to him like, oh my gosh, is this freaking, why is this CGI'd? And I was so confused. That threw me out of the movie because I kept thinking, why the freak is his mouth CGI'd? Until I researched it, I was like, are you freaking kidding me right now? They had to reshoot that and Paramount would not let him shave. That, I that, have to rewatch this. That freaking so, threw me. That so, threw Will, me. I think uh, um, what I heard was that it was more than just a few scenes that were reshot. They reshot huge chunks of the movie. Huge. The test audiences that saw the movie didn't like it. They thought it was too serious. They just, the movie was a mess. So what did they do? They brought in Joss Whedon, who wrote and directed um, the uh, first two Avengers movies. And I to love fix the Josh movie. Whedon. Yeah. They wanted him to infuse some humor into it. So what I heard was that a huge chunk of the movie was reshot. And, you know, honestly, let's just be honest. The, the CGI in the Justice League overall was really bad. It's like they ran out of time. And that kind of transitions to my number two least favorite moment from the DCEU. Number two on my list is any scene, any scene in the Justice League with Steppenwolf in it. <laughs> I see, mother. I see why you waited to summon me. The Kryptonian's death plunged this timid world into such terror. Amazons, Atlanteans, each stands and falls alone. I know, Mother, you've waited too long for the unity. I know, but you will feed. And my exile will come to an end. Now, I I don't know what was going on here because he looked like they just were half finished rendering the effects on on Steppenwolf. I mean, comp- okay, so it wouldn't have been as egregious, but right after I watched Avengers, right, and Thanos is a fully realized character. There's a great performance by Josh Josh Brolin. We understand his motivation. We know what makes him tick. And in every scene, like he is someone to be feared. He is intimidating. We know why he's doing what he's doing. With Steppenwolf, it's like literally flatter than like a one-dimensional crayon drawing from a four-year-old. I have no idea why they, they thought that it would be okay. You know what I'm talking about, Will, right? He yeah. looked totally fake. All right. Uh, how about you, Will? What is your least favorite moment from the DCEU? My number one. My number one was kind of was basically uh, your number um, five. Five. Yeah, yeah, your number five. It was basically Aries. Aries was a curveball, and I didn't expect it. <laughs> I, it was, but <laughs> it was an unpleasant reveal because I could not stop thinking of Remus Lupin 
in that crazy armor and how it just he, didn't work huh it looked like funny <laughs> i honestly looked at him and thought you did nothing different with this <laughs> with this villain that that sets you apart from what you are in, in harry potter you literally have the same mustache you literally have the same haircut you just have a huge ass body of armor and honestly like I couldn't take it seriously. And I think they tried yeah. tried to make it serious by engulfing his entire head with that huge ass helmet. But it's basically Lupin, Professor Lupin in a helmet. <laughs> but it was Lupin still in my mind in that yeah. huge ass helmet. Yeah. yeah. Like it just I don't I don't understand how he didn't do something to really change the form of, of what we're like yeah. of his character yeah. from a from a makeup stand up point of view. It would have been cooler if he had like the face of Brad Pitt, you know, <laughs> something like that. Dude, that like, would be just, badass. Imagine Batman. I mean, like, he's he's the know. freaking god of war, and he has yeah. the face of a bookish professor. It just was a little bit weird. Anyhow, moving on to our favorite DCEU moments. I like to end things on a positive note here. Yes. And we, I want to talk about the things that we liked. So, Will, I know I that you start. got five here. So, uh, yep, you got five. You got five on it. <laughs> So what is your number five favorite moment from the DCEU? My number five comes from Justice League. Apart from the majority of, of at least my friends that wasn't a fan, I was a fan of Ezra Miller as The mm. Flash. I thought he yeah. brought a very different dynamic to the the troop, the Justice League. Hi, Barry. I'm Diana. That's not right. Great. So this is us. Yeah, this is us. Oh, Awesome. That's a bad signal. That's your... Oh, sorry. That's your signal. That means we have to go now. Yeah, that's that's what that means. It's so cool. (laughs) I think that he really set the tone as a comic relief. Yeah. And and to me, made it more manageable to watch overall. I don't know. I I, I loved his armor. I love... Okay, when you talk about the CGI, and I know how much you thought, like, they just kind of ran out of money... I really thought I, the concept of how the Flash, how they made the Flash go use his powers was clever. And I liked the way how they did it. Yeah, I'd have to agree. And and I do do agree with you. He brought a certain levity to the movie, which it needed. And you have all these really old, like, big, burly guys. And to have this, like, kind of teenage speedster was really cool. I thought it was well done. And he I looked, agree with you. Yeah, and he had the look... Uh, a bit more a bit more relatable in a sense or or uh, not just relatable but that that kind of rebel a little bit of a rebel kind of feel as well mm-hmm. which I, yeah. I thought also brought a nice little dynamic to the character of um, of the flash so hmm. cool. um, so what about you what is your number five uh, my number five favorite DCEU moment um, I know I'm supposed to just pick one scene but I have to really say it was most, if not all, of the scenes that took place in Atlantis uh, in from the movie Aquaman. What the hell is that? The Ring of Fire. So I am generally not a fan of 
movies that use too much CG. And um, I also was very skeptical about how they would portray this underwater world. It's like everything is underwater. Like, how are they going to talk? How is their hair going to move? What are, what are the worlds going to look like? But I have to say that how they portrayed Atlantis did not disappoint. Um, just the visuals, it reminded me of equal parts Pandora from Avatar and Tron from Tron Legacy and also Gunga from Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. It was absolutely beautiful. It looked like a video game. It didn't look real, but it was real enough for me and it felt like a, a playground. And just to see the action scenes that took place there, it was really, really cool. I am a huge fan of how James Wan directs movement. He's a very kinetic director. I saw it from even movies like The Conjuring and The Conjuring 2. And the way the camera moves here was was very similar. And I really enjoyed how he shot those underwater scenes. Little things I appreciated. Uh, the actor's hair, how it moves underwater. And even like Amber Heard, who plays Mara, she has a whole lot of hair and seeing how her hair moves underwater. And when they're talking, um, their voices are slightly modulated to let you know that, you know, they're not, you know, just breathing air at the moment. And also their faces kind of just like, it's hard to describe it. It kind of moved and distorted in a very subtle way to let you know that we're not looking at them through air. We're looking at them through a liquid. All these little touches uh, was something that I'm sure was really, really, really hard to create in, in, you know, in post. But I thought they did a really, really great job. The action scenes were amazing, like I said, especially the scene where uh, Aquaman is fighting against his half-brother, King Orm, played by Patrick Wilson. And right when he's about to die, how Mera, played by Amber Heard, swoops in, saves him, and they go on this huge chase through the sea. That was really, really great. So that's my number five. That was that was very detailed. I didn't know yeah. like, you know, I, and I have to admit to the listeners out there, I still have to watch Aquaman. So yeah, it's a good watch. Uh, it's very formulaic. When you talked about earlier how Birds of Prey embraces the camp, I think Aquaman does that well too. It knows it's just a fun popcorn movie and it doesn't take itself too seriously. And it it really is a fun ride. So okay, I enjoyed it. Nice. Yes. Yeah. And what is your number four? Number four favorite DCEU moment comes from man of steel and it's the entire scene from krypton i know you've had your whole avatar moment (laughs) but i love seeing the fall and how the attention to detail of the world was captured yeah Uh, i think it had a really strong beginning to the film and i thoroughly enjoyed russell crow's performance as jor-el interesting Um, because this was on my this was on my least favorite list it was i know but the thing is when you talk when you think about the planet krypton like Mm. yeah i mean there of course will be animals on there we don't know what kind you know what they look like and i don't know i looked at more of his um dragon slash you know um flying pet whatever that was as like a horse or something where Uh even though the technology is high high end though they still can tame their beasts that live on that planet so i just thought that that was kind of cool to watch to incorporate nature in that sense the, yeah. the natural uh, life that lives there. Yeah, and just the chaos. The chaos of it all really set the tone for uh, Clark's journey and, and, mm. and the beginning of of Superman's journey, basically. Gotcha, gotcha. So, yeah, I maybe I, I should reconsider or just rewatch it. I mean, uh, like I said before, I'm someone that grew up watching Brando as Jor- Jor-El. I, I'm, I'm an old fart. I'm turning 40 this year. So maybe it's just having to let go of, um, you know, my ties to the previous Superman movies. But 
I do see why you like it. It's definitely yeah. different. Yeah. All right. Going to you. What is your number four? My number four favorite moment, or <clears throat> in this case, moments, is from Man of Steel. What I thought really worked in the movie was um, basically the scenes when Clark is growing up. I thought it was shot really, really well. Now, uh, I heard little stories about how they shot this movie. Um, Zack Schneider, the one thing I think we can all agree on, whether you like his movies or not, is he's a very visual director. Now, what I heard was that he really wanted to control every frame of this movie. So even though it's a big Hollywood blockbuster, he shot this whole movie with one camera because he wanted to just obsess over that image on that screen. And I thought that really uh, came to light when we got to see Clark growing up. Even these like throwaway shots of just, uh, you know, Clark standing in the middle of uh, laundry hanging from clotheslines in his backyard. Uh, there, there's a beauty to it that almost made me feel like I was watching a Terrence Malick film. Hmm. Yeah, and then even when uh, Clark is just starting to struggle with his powers and come to control them, uh, he's he's having a hard time. So there are two scenes that really stick out for me. There's one where he is sitting in a classroom and he is just getting overstimulated by all the sights and sounds around him, and he oh, runs yeah, and hides yeah. in a janitor's closet. His parents won't even let him play with other kids. I know. What a weirdo, sweetie. How can I help you if you won't let me in? The world's too big, Mom. Then make it small. Just, um... Focus on my voice. Pretend it's an island out in the ocean. Can you see it? I see it. Then swim towards it, honey. And maybe it's just because I'm a mama's boy, but there's a scene where Diane Lane, who is in real life way too hot to play Martha Kent, but in this scene, you know, she comes and then talks to Clark through the door and is trying to get him to control his powers. Um, That was a very beautiful scene. Uh, The other scene, and I think we might see this on your list later, uh, um, Kevin Costner, who plays Jonathan Kent, is always telling him, you're here for a purpose. Yep. But you can't just go around like showing off your powers. The reasoning in the movie is is very clearly explained. Um, but basically, there's a scene where they're stuck in traffic and a tornado is coming down the freeway. And uh, Clark, who's now older and is now like the Henry Cavill, who you know is is playing the teenage version of of Clark, uh, he sees his father and he has the opportunity to save him. But the father, Kevin Costner, looks back at him and says, "Stop! If this is what is supposed to happen, then I don't want you to interfere." You know, it's such a emotional moment. Um, it's totally understandable. And at the same time, we start to get the sense that uh, uh, the sense of the burden that Clark must carry. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest knock on Superman was that he's a character with no flaws, no weaknesses. And because of that, he wasn't very identifiable like Batman is. And I think with this movie, they tried really hard to make him identifiable to show you know what he struggles with and to make us really uh, like him like his character and to want to root for him i think this scene goes a long way in accomplishing that so that is my number four dceu moment so what is your number three favorite dceu moment number three for me was uh wonder woman revealing yourself in no man's land during world war ii or world war one mm, mm. i'm sorry love this uh, moment the switch to slow motion as she unravels her hair and then shows her crown and, and says, no, but it's what I'm going to do. 
uh, give me chills. Dinah, we have to go. We need to help these people. We have to stay on mission. <laughs> the next safe crossing is at least a day away. What are we waiting we for? We cannot leave without helping them. These people are dying. Nothing to eat, yeah. and in the village enslaved, I, she said. I understand that. Women, we, we need children. To make our next position by How can you say that? What is the matter? This is no man's land, Diana. It means no man can cross it, all right? This battalion has been here for nearly a year, and they, they barely gained an inch. All right, because on the other side, there are a bunch of Germans pointing machine guns at every square inch of this place. This is not something you can cross. It's not possible. So what? So we do nothing? No, we do, we are doing something. We are. We just we can't save everyone in this war. This is not what we came here to do. what I'm going to do. So that's my number three. And going back to you, what is your number three? My number three moment, favorite moment in the DCEU movie is the scene where Steve Trevor, played by Chris Pine, and Diana Prince, played by Gal Gadot, they have a moment in a boat as they are sailing over to England where they're talking about gender dynamics. Where I come from, babies are, are made differently. <laughs> You refer to reproductive biology. Yes, yes. Yeah, I know. I know all about that. I mean, I refer to that and, and other things. The pleasures of the flesh. Do you know about that? I've read all 12 volumes of Cleo's treatises on bodily pleasure. All 12, huh? Mm-hmm. Did you bring any of those with you? You would not enjoy them. I don't know, maybe. No, you wouldn't. Why not? They came to the conclusion that men are essential for procreation, but when it comes to pleasure, unnecessary. Now, up until this point, uh, all we saw were Zack Schneider DCEU films, which was light on the subtext and heavy on everything else. So what I loved about this scene is just all the multiple layers to the conversation they're having. The scene is long, but it works because it's funny. You know, uh, Diana is the naive girl that sees women as empowered and doesn't know that women, doesn't know that the world sees them any other way. And then there's Chris Pine who comes from, you know, England and he's like, no, 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 uh, women in my world, you know, do this. And that's completely foreign and strange to Diana. They talk about things very innocently, but uh, you know, deep down, they're really talking about gender dynamics. And even though this movie takes place in the 1920s, I think a lot of what they're talking about is true today. And so, you know, she is all about women empowerment, and um, you know, Chris Pine is all about kind of following the rules of society and what society has said is normal. And those two really kind of come to a head. And even though. Uh, Gal Gadot is playing a woman who is naive and doesn't know, you know, cultural or societal norms. She's actually the right one in this case. She's correct. Yes. She really brings forth the, like, you know, equality for lack of a better word of of how it should be in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I really love this. It's just two people talking in a boat and the scene goes long and I laughed and, you know, I really just enjoyed it. It was was really, really great. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So. What is your number two favorite DCEU moment, Will? My number two 
goes back to Man of Steel, and it was basically also in your list of Jonathan Kent's death. Um, the tornado scene where, you know, obviously um, there was nowhere to go, but basically, you know, uh, Clark was attempting to want to save his dad, but his dad stops him. I just want to do something useful with my life. So farming, feeding people, that's not thats not useful. I didn't say that. My family's been farming for five generations, Clark. Your family, not mine. I, I don't even know why I'm listening to you. You're not my dad. You're just some guy who found me in a field. Clark! That's all right, Martha. He's right, Clark has a point. We're not your parents. We've been doing the best we can, and we've been making this up as we go along. So maybe, maybe our best isn't good enough anymore. Look, Dad, hold on. They really made Jonathan Kent a wise and loving father. Uh, his sacrifice would lead to bigger and greater things for Clark. I think that. It's amazing how when you have such a wise dad like that to know and understand like, look, you, I know what you're capable of, but the world isn't ready to see it. And, and the, and you need more time to understand how the world works. You know, like it definitely, it definitely got like my heart stirring as he just lifted his hand up and just stopped Clark and let the, and the tornado just taking him away. Like that just made me like tear up a little bit, you know? And knowing that that Clark understood and trusted his father, well, yeah. when he told him like the world isn't ready yet, so it's a very interesting scene. There's a lot of layers to it. It's very complicated, you know. And because of that, like we see that Clark is obedient and understands his father and will do what he says. At the same time, we realize that as a result of this, he must carry this weight of of guilt of of a burden, knowing that he could have saved his father. And I'm sure like it, he asked himself the question, even though, you know, dad told me not to, should I have done it anyway? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, uh, it was just a really great scene and it puts a certain type of very complex burden on Clark's shoulders that we uh, identify with. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a great scene. It's a good choice. Well, beautiful. It was so good. Yeah. All right. Throwing it back to you, man. All right. My number two favorite scene from the DCEU is when Shazam learns the extent yeah. of his powers. What are your superpowers? Superpowers, dude? I don't even know how to pee in this thing. Okay, can you fly? Okay, let's do this. How do we do this? Just, um, just like Superman it. <laughs> My God, obviously you have to jump. Come on. How is any of this obvious? Okay, try uh, to believe that you can fly, okay? I read this deep dive into peer-reviewed studies about superpowers, and in six out of 10, belief is the key. Belief, 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 okay, okay. I believe I can fly. I believe I, I believe I can fly. I believe I. Did you believe? Seeing an origin story of a superhero coming to terms with their powers in the age of social media hasn't really been done before, but that's one of the reasons why I think this montage is so entertaining. Zachary Levi is really good as Shazam. He is downright hilarious. 
And uh, equally as good is Jack Dylan Grazer, who plays his foster brother, Freddie Freeman. Um, I mean, I'm almost 40. I like to roll. I tend to roll my eyes when I watch what the young kids are watching on YouTube today. Mm -hmm. But that's exactly the types of videos that Shazam and Freddie are making here. They're trying to figure out what Shazam can and can't do. And they do things like light him on fire. <laughs> and then there's another scene where uh, he goes to rob a grocery store and he realizes he's, they realize that he's bulletproof. But they're not sure if it's the suit or if it's face. So as a bad guy is shooting at him, Freddy says, wait, we don't know if it's a suit or you. And he tells the bad guy, shoot him in the face. <laughs> All this stuff was just so clever and so fun. And I, I can't wait for Shazam 2. So that is my number two favorite moment. Loved it. I love Shazam. Yeah. Yep. All right. Coming down to our number ones here. Will, what is your number one favorite moment from the DCEU? Well, speaking of Shazam, it's Shazam. <laughs> Say my name so my power may flow through you. I open my heart to you, Billy Batson, and in so doing, choose you as champion. With your heart, unlock your greatest power. Thrones of our brothers and sisters await! Say my name. Billy! No, not my name. No, the, say the name that I say to turn into this guy. Shazam! Yeah, we all thought they would yell Shazam, but they say Billy. Yeah. Like, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah the other name, the other scene. name. Yeah. Yeah. It was so good. And then yeah. they just have a moment of and And just the timing of it, where they all just kind of, and there's no music, no background noise. It was just silence, that awkward silence. And they go, shazam so it was yeah. good timing overall it was so well done and yeah man i loved it i yeah that would you say okay that to me was if i because i haven't seen aquaman yet though shazam to me is what also embraced campiness like uh, that yeah, was a sure. great film of where it really truly captured the essence of a comic book into a film to mm -hmm. me so yeah they they stuck to their tone and i think uh i, I appreciate completely that. but all right well going to you now what is your number one my number one favorite movie was actually your number three it's when wonder woman re reveals herself from the world war one oh, trench yeah nice now i have to say i got the chills in this moment i mean when we think of world war one we think of trench warfare the soldiers in the scene are injured tired and demoralized the situation is bleak and gray and the color of the overall scene is bleak and gray as well. And then Wonder Woman emerges from the trench, lets her hair down, and then we see her red, blue, and gold costume, which completely pops against the background. The music cut, uh, you know, cuts in. We hear the drums and then she starts to fight. And then that first moment when she dodges that bullet, I'm just like, holy cow, she is freaking badass. But what's really cool here is that she serves as a symbol, uh, a symbol for men, you know, and we talk about symbols a lot in movies. I know that in Batman Begins, um, Bruce Wayne talks about I need to be a symbol for Gotham, you know, and I in order to do that, I have to wear a mask. But here we have a woman 
with their face in plain sight, stepping out into an area where no man dared to go, and in doing so, she emboldens and empowers a group of men to follow behind her. Now that's pretty damn awesome. Hmm. Yeah, and, and just what that scene means, it, it's it's great. And you know, if if I have a daughter uh, at some point, God willing, I would want her to watch this movie, and I want her to watch this scene. Are you gonna force so her to be Wonder Woman for every Halloween? Yes. Oh, jeez. Save me some money. <laughs> I'll, I'll just I'll just let out the uh, let out the costume a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Was such an epic scene, and yeah. I think that for any superhero film, when you have an epic entrance for the the hero you know you got to do it right it ha it just you can't mess that up and they did yeah. definitely did not mess this one up so for sure it was great yeah all right everyone that is our uh, episode for the day we went through a review of birds of prey and also discussed our favorite and least favorite dceu moments tune in next week for a review of the tv show the boys and uh, other than that we will see you then have a great week <laughs>